0: Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with episode number 123 of The Yacking Show. This is the show for awakening you to new perspectives in the changing world we find ourselves in. We always have interesting guests, and today is no exception. We have an especially interesting guest today but it's not my job to introduce guests. Kathleen does it way better than I do. So my first job is to welcome my co-host, Kathleen Beauvais in Waterloo. Hi, Kathleen, how are you doing on this hot Ontario day?
1: I'm doing great, Peter, thanks. And you're right, I'm ta- I'm just soaking in this beautiful weather right now, I'm loving it. So. Thank you all so very, very much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate you and we love reading your comments. So do please keep those coming. And if anyone out there is interested in being a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to reach out to either Peter or myself. And today folks, oh my goodness, I'm so excited and terribly honored to have just such a a special individual on our show with us today. His name is Jim Estel. Jim, welcome to the show. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Now, Jim, you are the CEO of Danby Appliances. You're humanitarian and we'll get to that in a bit. But you're an investor, an advisor and a board member to many technology companies. In fact, you are one of three co-founders of Communitech. And for those of you out there that don't know, Communitech is it's an innovation hub here in our region. That um, is dedicated to helping companies start up, um, grow, and succeed. Basically, so Jim, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background? You are an entrepreneur at heart. What made you take on the entrepreneurial journey instead of the conventional route, if you will? And um, yes, just tell, them, just start off.
2: Well, I'm an engineer, and I, as I was in my last year at university, I wanted to, to design circuit boards, and I needed a computer. And back then, computers were very expensive, and I got a better deal if I bought two of them. So I bought two and sold one, and then someone else wanted one, so I bought another two. And then someone wanted a printer, then someone wanted a disk drive, then we started selling memory, and then we sold you know, hardware, software, and peripherals. And pretty soon, of course, I was too busy, so I uh, hired my brother, and then I hired someone else. I hired someone else, and eventually, we built that business to a couple billion dollars in sales. So it was a long journey. Um, and then, because I was doing, I was selling technology products, I, people would come to me and say, "Oh, I've got this new, you know, product, isn't it?" Uh, you know, and I'm a techie guy, so oh, yeah, that's very interesting. And I would invest in some of those businesses. And I would act as a board member, advisor, mentor. So I've invested in over 150 companies. The one that I'm most famous for is BlackBerry. I was uh, one of the founding board members of BlackBerry. And uh, I left that board in 2010, see? And, my, and the joke is, uh, and look what happened to them. See, I left in <laughs>
0: I was I was looking, thinking of the calendar in my head when you said that, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but... Um, but the other part of the message, I know you're, you have many entrepreneurs listening. I did invest 150 companies and I can name some that you will recognize. And many of them like PostRank sold to Google and some of them sold, you know, INEX sold to Infospace and um, Slipstream sold to BlackBerry. There's a lot of them that sold to companies you recognize, but there's over 100, 125 to be exact that went out of business. So you're, you get famous for what you you know what you did that was successful i said oh wow the guy's a genius well the guy's a genius because he did 150 things and and the few of them worked out right it's like it's it's like a shotgun you you it wasn't that i was a perfectly good aim i just uh sent enough shot out in the air and it hit a few birds
0: <laughs> good way that's a good good way of putting it the one i'm most interested in and you've covered part of it there You you started off selling Computers and computer equipment. I believe it was from the trunk of your car. I nearly said boot because of my British education, but the trunk of your car, and and you built that into two billion dollars worth of sales. I mean that that is an extraordinary achievement. So, just tell us a little bit more about some of some of the big hurdles you overcame and some of the steps in achieving that.
1: Because you were still a student, weren't you, when that happened? I-
2: yeah, well, I, well, not when I hit $2 billion, but yes, yeah. I, when I started the business. And that's why um, the trunk of my car was the safest place. I was living in a university residence, <laughs> and, and and computers were worth a lot of money. So my trunk of my car was the safest place for my computers, my memory. And, of course, the stuff I was selling was small. So you could uh, get $1,000 worth of disk drive or memory chips or $10,000. So um, – it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time. So my first year sales were only $450,000. Then I did a 1,079,000. Then I did 2.6 million. Then I did uh, 4.6 million. Then I did 5.6. That was a slow growth year. Then I did 10 million. Then I did 21 million. And then I did 30 million. And then I did 41 million. Then I did 39 and then 40. So three years, I had no growth. And I learned that no growth is no fun. Then I did Um, 68 million. And then I did 104 million. So it took me a decade to get to that 100 million mark. Um, And, and then after that, I, I just kept on growing. One of the tricks I did was I studied companies that were bigger than me. So when I was doing 10 million in sales, I'd say, well, what do people doing 50 million look like? What do they do This different than what I do? What do people, and then when I'm doing 100, what do people doing a billion do? And then when mm-hmm. you're half a billion, what's people doing two billion? So I would always study people um, and, and what, what would I need to do different? And the, the trick I had learned is what don't you do? It's actually not what you start doing, it's what you stop doing, stop
0: doing.
2: To, to scale yourself. Um, And I will tell you, it's very hard to stop doing things because if you know how to do something, it's pretty easy to keep doing it. It's usually a little bit of pain to delegate or to get someone else to do it because they won't do it the way you want it to be done and whatnot. So, um, but I learned that I wasn't going to scale the business unless I um, gave up some things. So I can successfully gave up things till I got to my present state. Well, I got, I built that to $2 billion. I retired and moved to New York for five years did some more angel investing and stuff like that. Then um, my dad got sick. So I moved back to Guelph. And uh, I happened to at that time, I was sitting on the board of directors of Danby Appliances and uh, the CEO resigned. And I said, well, I, I, I could go in and you know run it for a little while. And I, learned, I had learned in my five year retirement that I liked running a business. I didn't realize I did as much as when I started running Danby again, I said, this is what I want to do for my next decade. And uh, I and I that's partly because I retired too young. I kind of did what I thought the world said I should do: go build right. a business, make it big, sell it for a lot of money, and retire. And yep. I learned well, it's not what I want to do. I want to run a business. So then the ownership group of Danby said they wanted me to sell the business. I said how much for? They told me, and I said fine, I'll take it. So that's how I ended up owning Danby Appliances, mm-hmm. and that was only about five years ago that I bought the company after running it for about a year. Okay. Oh, my
1: goodness. Well, tell us the secrets of your success in helping to build the Danby brand.
2: Well, um, the key with the businesses I've been involved in is there, is there is no one secret. It's a whole bunch of little things. And, and so I do believe in competitive advantage, but it's not one competitive advantage. It's a bunch of little competitive advantages. Mm-hmm. So we have to recognize Danby's a, a tiny company. Um, we do about 400 million in sales. And um, so you have to think small. You have to be a little bit um, guerrilla. Um, also, as, as I learned as I grow my business, it's what you give up, which means I need to have people that do it. So I have a great team. So a lot of what I try to do is foster team and team. And, and I'm trying to bring the technology company speed into a smokestack business. So bring in some of that speed because when I came to Danby, they'd say, oh, we're going to going to decide what um, freezers we're going to do in 2022 and I'm saying, or 2023, like, well, what do you mean you're trying, like, what are we doing next week? And so uh, because in the technology business, if you tried to plan two years ahead, your, your uh, iPhone is kind of not going to have the features you want because you don't even know what's available two years from now. Right. So uh I guess to, to some extent, sense of urgency and speed. And I have a whole bunch of little tiny business sayings that I talk and repeat all the time that I hope builds the culture. So I believe the bigger company gets, the more the leader's job is to coach on culture and let everyone else make decisions. Yep. That's one belief because if the culture's right, I'm on your show, something's gonna happen. I know something's happening, but if people understand what the culture is, they'll make the decision without having to wait for me and whatnot. But my job is to coach on culture. So if I go back and say, I was out of the action for an hour and we spent $100,000 uh, painting lines in the parking lot, it's, well, wait a minute, did we get three quotes? Did the lines need to be re- repainted? Could we do it ourselves? I would have done it on the weekend if you, if you asked me to. So that would have been a decision not made in the right culture. Mm-hmm.
0: If you know, what I mean. mm-hmm. Right. I, I want to pick up on something quick. I, I know on your website, you say that you make, Danby makes things with compressors, by and large, there's one or two exceptions. So, so is, is narrowly focusing your product range a big thing of how to do some things better?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's partly competitive advantage. Yeah, uh, it, It's also why, like, we're in a very hot day here today in uh, Guelph and Waterloo and Woodstock, um, and we sell, air conditioners so what is the appliance company doing selling air conditioners and dehumidifiers. the commonality is they have compressors they are the same compressors as in a bar fridge so we buy two million compressors a year that's why we do it is it all about focus Peter I'm not sure I'm actually the poster child for lack of focus at least that's what my staff would say Um, and And sometimes I do stray too far from the knitting, but other times that gets us into a business area that is successful and makes money.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I have some like to pick your brains on that one a little more later on. But I want to ask you about your books. You've written two books, um, one on time management and one on leadership, if I'm right. Um, tell us more and, and what motivated you? I mean, you're a busy man from no matter how well you're delegating. I know you've got to be a busy guy with all the other stuff you do. How did you, well, how did you get motivated to write the books and how did you find the time to write the books? Two questions, sorry.
2: Yeah, well, and, and again, there's no really good answer. Um, because I was having a problem with time management, I studied time management. And I devised my own, and I polished my own system. I still, to this day, try to polish my time management systems to get better and better. And I've learned that's even not about as much about time management as it is about energy management. Because mm-hmm. because you could say tonight you're going to work from, you know, seven to nine. I'm telling you, if, you, if you're not energetic, you're not going to get anything done from seven oh. till nine. So it's. But um, so I became passionate about time management, and I did. A seminar with all my staff and then i talked to one of my friends wanted me to do the seminar for his staff and then i next thing you know, i'm doing these seminars and then someone says you should write a book so uh, that's how the time management book came about i am also a marketer and um in in my in my computer business i had learned a lot about printing because at that time it was we were still paper-based um, more and pe- we would mail out catalogs to our dealers and uh, we would print a ton of paper. We'd go to a trade show and give away boxes and boxes of spec sheets and flyers. So I said, Well, if I'm going to pay for all this printing, I better figure out how to print it in house. So we basically invested in a printing company and, and I know a lot about printing. So le- knowing what I knew about printing, knowing what I knew about the price of books, I figured I can print that book and I published it myself, printed it myself and it as a marketing thing i gave people the book and then five years later they would see me and they would remember me for the book i could have given them a coffee mug It would yep. have been the same cost but how memorable is the t-shirt the coffee mug or the hat compared to a book that has your name in it um, that they see every time and it would also be passed on to different people so the other book was actually not on leadership. It's called Time, or it's called um, Zero to Two Billion. It's marketing and branding. So it's, it's a marketing book. And that one was a collection of blog entries I had done on marketing. So I had written a series of articles, which is really what a blog is, because back in that time, blogs were new, and I wanted to say what's blogging all about. So I went on and and sent you know did a whole bunch of blogs most many many of them were marketing lessons so I concatenated them all together that's how I end up with the zero to two billion marketing book again the same thing it became something I could give someone that cost me nothing because at that time by then I had gone to an ebook so I could email okay. it to someone yeah. it, it cost me hitting the send key and then it's it's memorable and then you might send it to other people the next thing you know so I didn't do it to be a famous author. I did it more as a marketing thing. And I guess I'm a natural networker, a natural teacher. And so people and, and, and people remember things that are personal. Yes. You, you don't remember it if I bought this promo pen and has remember, this does have a logo on it. You don't remember who the logo is. You use it until it runs out. You throw it away. And if it's not a nice pen, you don't use it in the first place because you've got another nicer pen from some other promo uh, company, right? Right.
1: Well, just to give a plug to your business is the first one we talked about on um, time management is entitled time leadership using the secrets of leadership for time management Correct. and then the second one is zero to two billion the marketing and branding story behind the growth C- can you tell us how people can get a hold of those books
2: uh the best bet is to uh, connect to me on linkedin which is very easy to do jim astell and my assistant can uh look after that so best is, is to connect on LinkedIn. And I think they might, I don't know whether they're for sale on Amazon, I don't, I don't know uh, where they're available, but that's probably the easiest way. Uh, and I will also say that those are old. I mean, I published those 20 years or 15 years ago, so they're slightly dated. The, the time leadership, the difference between leadership and management is leadership is, is doing, working on the right thing. Management is doing things right. So management is about efficiency um, which you need. You want to be efficient, but leadership is more about going in the right direction. Absolutely. And that is another principle of time management, which really wins because you could um, do something very efficiently, you, but if it isn't the right thing to work on, it doesn't help you get to where you want. I, I liken it to, if I want to get from here to London, the best bet is probably look on a map to see which direction London is, not to get my car and go 200 kilometers an hour, not knowing where I'm going, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: So Jim, what types of ventures do you find most interesting that would make you want to invest?
2: So um, mostly I was doing technology businesses and uh, and then towards the late, that latter part, I was doing um, energy, alternative energy or, or environmental so it was mostly about environment and more environment technology towards the end of my investing and I am I am going back to this focus like I'm trying to stay focused and not trying hard not to do investments just because I've got my my business and I want to focus more on that I also learned from doing my investing it actually takes longer than you think to harvest your investment so everyone always comes and says oh I'm going to start this business and uh, I'll I'll be doing $50 million in three years. My experience is it'll take 10. So I I actually went through the successful exits I had and my average hold was 13 years. That's a long time. So I have to take my age add 13 years and say, do I want to be doing that at that time? Uh, Um, Now the other thing I like to, that I did like to do when I was investing was invest in something that I could help, help move the needle myself. Remember, at the time, I, I was doing uh, technology distribution. So mm-hmm. I could take a company that had a product, and I could distribute it to my dealers. At that time, I was selling to about 10,000 computer dealers, these little computer stores you see everywhere. And um, so I could put a product on the map by sending them, well, sending them the paper flyers I told you about, putting it in our catalog, taking it to the trade shows, doing the, the calling on it. So where, where I could add value other than just the money, that's where I had the, the, the that's what I really like to do. Because it, it's basically ensuring, not ensuring, but it's increasing the chances of success, if that makes sense.
0: hmm Interesting one. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go on to your humanitarian side, if I may, Jim. And, and you're instrumental now in bringing, I believe, around 500 people to Canada and predominantly Sur- Syrian refugees from Syria. So, so that, that's admir- admirable. What made you focus on Syria? Or uh, well, the plight of the Syrians, sorry.
2: Well, when I started bringing them in a few years ago, Syria was on, making front cover news. You could see mm-hmm. it was a humanitarian crisis of global proportion. And I didn't feel the government was doing things fast enough. So I said, well, what can I do? And I didn't know that I would end up being the poster child of refugee sponsorship. At that time, I said I would sponsor 50 families. And I I thought, well, they they could. My wife even tells me that I I always tend to think too big. So I just thought, well, 50, you know, like, why would I do one family? That's what a church group does. They do one family and they do bake sales to raise money. How much money can I afford? Okay, great. I'll do 50 families. And then I organized it a little like a business, a nonprofit. So I had a director of education, a director of health, a director of housing. Um, And then I had mentors uh, assigned to each family. So every family that came in would have four or five mentor families and the mentor families had checklists, get a bank account, register the kids in school, take the parent adults for ESL to get a doctor, get a dentist, um, get the bus passes, ride the bus with them, do all the housing, furniture, all that stuff. So I, I ran it a little like a business and I had 800 volunteers helping with that. Again, I get credit for it, but it's the volunteers that did all the work. Because if you think about it, I couldn't possibly meet 50 families at the airport and and find 50 apartments myself and set up 50 apartments myself and register 50 sets of kids in school. I mean, like, no, it it was all done by my mentor families.
0: And and I've got to say that I believe the reason one of the, the main reasons why your project was so successful is because you ran it like a business. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just go to my own example. I came here at the age of 54 speaking English. So I thought, well, language wise, I've got no problem. I've got a huge advantage over someone from Syria, for instance. Little did I know that there's a lot of different types of English and that my British English got me into some embarrassing moments in Canada. <laughs> with the differences between British and North American English. So I can just imagine how difficult it is for a non-English speaker coming from a traumatic situation with, with virtually nothing to start a new life in Canada without that support network that you put together. It, it must be impossible.
2: Well, and there's another big difference. The difference between a refugee and an immigrant, refugee is involuntary. So it's, yes. it's like right. me taking uh, all of your stuff, Kathleen, I take all your stuff and I give you a suitcase. Say you fill the suitcase. That's all you can take. And I am forcibly relocating you and I'm going to fly you to Russia. And, oh, by the way, we're not going to recognize your credentials. I don't care whether you're a doctor or a lawyer. And there's no way to verify. Oh, and you have no references. And so an employer comes in. Like if I'm hiring normally, what do you do? You check references. You check education. You're from Syria. I had engineers. I had pharmacists. I had... Um, I had one doctor. I had lots of different backgrounds that aren't recognized and rightly so in some cases that mm-hmm. you could be a doctor in Syria. I think it's a three year university degree. Well, you can't be a doctor that you can't, that doesn't translate to being a doctor in Canada. You have to go through the whole thing again, which if you don't speak English well is daunting in itself.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, I had a little taste of that. I didn't come as a voluntary immigrant, but thats I don't want to go into that because it's, it's your show. It's not my story. So I had a little taste and I can only imagine someone else in worse situations having to start a new life. Um, wow. Yeah. So that that's really commendable. Kathleen, you wanted to add, ask Jim a bit more on that one, I think.
1: Well, actually, I think you covered it um, pretty well, um, Jim. But what I'd like to ask you a little bit more about is your Communitech Um involvement and and how that came about because my goodness it has has just grown exponentially since you became involved and I mean that that's that in itself is such a a massive achievement so can you tell our audience a little bit more about that I mean it's it seems like you had this idea along with a couple more entrepreneurs and you started to build it and how did how did that come about?
2: So there was about um, eight or 10 of us and we were technology entrepreneurs. And we said, well, we should get together and learn from each other. So we started by having breakfast and lunch meetings at our businesses. So I would post this month and someone else would post next month. Someone else. So we rotated around from place to place. Then we said, well, this is getting too tough to orchestrate and, um, and whatnot. We need someone to organize the speakers and stuff. So we hired a very part-time executive director to help orchestrate. And uh, it's great, I was one of the co-founders, but it was all done by other people to create this. And then of course they got space and then they hired Ian Klugman and then uh, like it just went through the roof over again, over um, three decades. So everyone thinks this has happened fast. It happened, it it took a long, long time for it to have the traction that it now has.
1: Mm -hmm. One thing I'm
2: proud of is I, I call myself a founder. Because I am founder of Community. I was a founding board member of Blackberry. Right. I, I founded a business called Simply Clean that sold to Pure Source and then Now Foods. I founded my, uh, my previous computer company. So I founded a lot of these, uh, these things. Uh, I think it's just because I didn't know, wasn't smart enough. No, I shouldn't. That's all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I want to get back and ask Jim a little bit more about the the refugee thing. Reading reports, yours and others, your project or the project you put together with 800 volunteers was very successful. I, I don't know what the percentage success rate was, and I don't know if we need to talk about human development in percentages, but I think it's pretty clear that most, a huge majority of those people you sponsored have done relatively well since coming to Canada which is, is good news because so many people who don't get that support struggle you know, endlessly when in their new country. Um, can you tell us more about that? And, and, and am I right in saying that the vast majority are, have been successful in one way or another? Uh,
2: yes, they are. Um, I mean, part of it is I defined success. I do that with anything, what's to success? So success for me in that project was people working, Yep. Uh, speaking English, and some degree of integration. That's my measure of success. And up prior to the pandemic, we were over 90% uh, working and whatnot. Now I learned over time that to say speaking English, I had to lower my standards a little because it's very tough for some people to learn English when they're 50 years old and whatnot. The pandemic did take some of the jobs away from our refugees. So it was more of a problem. I will tell you right now, it's not a problem again because the labor market is actually tight. It's easy to get a job Anywhere, but for a little while we we struggled. Um, But our job is to help people through a hard time. Our job is not to help them on a hard time. There's a little bit of tough love there. It's like Mm -hmm. if you're capable of working, then work, and 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 maybe that means at a different level than what you were. So I understand you were a lawyer in Syria. Well, you're not going to be a lawyer here because you're you're willing to spend the ten years to learn English and and whatnot. If you're not, then what are you going to do here? And so talk people into uh, the right level. And, but these people are very ambitious and want to create a new life. They're good people. Um, the difference between government-sponsored and private-sponsored is government can give you a check to buy a bus pass, but government doesn't ride the bus with you. No. So the analogy I used um, previously with Kathleen, you just flew to Russia and the bus gives you a bus pass. All right, so t- how, how, how's your day going to be? You're going to do pretty well on that or what? Or, But maybe if someone rides the bus with you two or three times then you kind of know where the grocery store is, you know how to get downtown, you know how to, to get around. So it's that, uh, and then you slowly have to pull those supports out. You can't have it. And I did have a problem that some of my volunteers over volunteered right. So I had to have words with them. No, don't give them a ride to work. You can't be giving the guy a ride to work six months later. Like I don't have a driver. He can't have a driver. Like it's just not. You have to learn to stand on your own. Um, and and I and some of the well-meaning volunteers would say, "Oh yes, but it's that business. The bus nearest bus stop's a kilometer away. It's like, yeah, like that's what you do. You walk a you walk that's- a kilometer, right? Like yeah. um, the other thing is, as you say, success is when you're talking human and people. It's tougher to measure than
0: straight business if you know what i mean mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what you mean but but we hear so many horror stories of of other immigrants perhaps from other destination other countries that end up in in ghettos essentially and in, in, enc- in enclaves where very few people are working where there's no assimilation where crime is rampant um because it's it's not managed like a business project like yours is. so so that's well, well but then that's part of the definition success is People speaking English,
2: some degree of integration. Yeah. Because I could have just um, made a deal with one landlord, put everyone in one building. I could have hired translators. Uh, Someone said to me, Oh, so you're going to learn to speak Arabic? The answer is no. It's not healthy for me to learn Arabic. It's healthy for them to learn English. And I could say it's because I'm probably lazy, but in reality, it is better to speak English. I, I would even joke if I go outside my factory and someone be speaking arabic to each other i'd say no this this is canada we uh you never hear me speaking arabic here do you so like yeah uh, i i and and i did start a program at at work at first i wasn't going to hire anyone but um i learned that for the first 90 days there's actually a lot of appointments by the time you do a dentist appointment a doctor's appointment esl getting a bus pass bank all of that stuff takes time and if you send someone to work at another employer they started saying, wait a minute, this person's lazy. This person has been out for five appointments in the last three weeks. So I started a program called Ease into Canada and we would hire any refugee, whether or not we sponsored them in our factory for 90 days. And the focus was on ESL. So we had ESL classes, we had English lunch buddies, we had English um, word of the day, um, English tutors, English homework um, and and, and the advantage of that also is, even if you are not going to come in as a factory, you don't wanna be a factory worker. If I say for 90 days, you work in the factory to learn English, and, and the other thing we do is, of course, resume writing and job coaching. So if you are a pharmacist, then let's uh, you know get you ready, do the interview, and then get you a job as a clerk in a pharmacy, probably making minimum wage. Yep but then figure out how do you get your courses to get your certification to become a real pharmacist.
0: Absolutely. And that 90 days in your factory, they've got a reference, which they wouldn't have had if they hadn't that's done right. that. Well, that's Doesn't right. Matter, but it's not in their chosen field. They- well, and,
2: and, and then after that, like we post all the jobs that we have. If you work for us for 90 days, and you see a job posting, say, yeah, I'd like to do that that job. If you've done a good job and you apply, we'll give you the job. So I have some of them are permanent with me and I, and I love them and I think they like me too. So I, I think it's mutually positive.
0: Excellent. Well, wow, that, that is good Good to hear. We, we're getting towards the end of our time, but I've got an evergreen question, my favorite, that I've got to ask you. you know, based on your experience and, and your success in so many different fields, business and humanitarian, what would you say is the most important characteristic that differentiates the really good and effective and successful business leader from those that never get beyond average? Is there a key characteristic?
2: I would say the key is gratitude. Gratitude helps your humility, gratitude. Uh, actually, gratitude is the the secret to happiness. I, I learned from the Syrians happiness is being grateful for what you have, not ungrateful for what you've lost, not ungrateful for what other people have. So put yourself in the refugee shoes. I just came someone just came in, took everything you have, transported you to some other place, you're starting over again. But the ones who are happy are the ones who are grateful and I practice gratitude myself. And, and to some extent, i like it because otherwise we start thinking we're good. And, and we're, and as soon as you start thinking you're good, then you aren't open to learning. You're not, uh, the arrogance kills companies. Sure. Arrogance kills, uh, it's just not healthy. in My opinion.
1: Do you have mantras that you say and, and you, you mentioned earlier about having, um,
2: sure, I, I, I do have a, I have a lot of them. Um, the, uh, One of the things I say is successful people do tough things. And I say that to myself when I'm doing tough things and I, there is always going to be some tough things that I have to deal with one. And so that is one uh, uh, thing that I repeat to myself, but there's others that I uh, repeat like that fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Having a failure does not make you a failure because we all have egos. So you can imagine I bring out a new product and that product's unsuccessful and whatnot. I can go and hang my head and say, oh, I'm, I'm terrible and whatnot. It's not fail-off and fail fast, fail cheap. Having a failure does not make you a failure. What makes you a failure is not trying. Mm-hmm. So by trying and not succeeding, it, I have I have won because at least I've tried. Um, yep. And You'll never see anybody who hits home run who didn't doesn't step up to bat, right? So that's...
1: Sure. That's right. oh my goodness! Wonderful,
0: nice. good, good advice. Um, people who want to find out more about Danby can go to the Danby website. Correct? Yes, yes. It's
2: just simple danby.com, d-a-n-b-y.com, Danby. and we sell Danby. all kinds of appliances. We're we're actually leaders in small, large appliances. Kind of sounds strange, but we sell sell smallish fridges. We sell mm-hmm. apartment size freezers. We sell. We don't tend to sell the great big double size huge humongous ones, but it's freezers, fridges, wine coolers, air conditioners, dehumidifiers. And we do sell stoves and microwaves, that sort of thing as well.
0: And then the last one, are, do you, are you still looking for volunteers for your um, Syrian refugee project? Uh,
2: I would consider volunteers, uh, they have to be in Guelph. We only settle people in Guelph, so it's only in Guelph. And I will say also settlement right now is kind of on hold with the pandemic. So yes. everything slowed to a snail's pace. Um, so don't expect that we have a, a job right now but yes absolutely reach out for that and as i said yeah. the best way to reach out to me mm-hmm. is via linkedin i'm very good at responding to linkedin and if the conversation gets uh, ser- serious i give you my email and let we switch to email
0: sure well we will put that um on the video so people i'm sure there would be people who we would like to help out in that regard too so thank you jim
1: yes thank you
0: very much for your time that was a very interesting conversation and i know our audience will be as thrilled as we were with that absolutely
1: thank you you so much jim what an honor it was to have you on our show and uh thank you all so much again for tuning into our show Uh, we love reading your comments so please keep those coming and again if anyone out there is interested in being a guest on our show please don't hesitate to reach out to either peter or myself and until next time take care bye bye everyone